Well then, once more, let's turn to the passage that we've been looking at for the last few days. Matthew chapter 26. And uh, yesterday we looked at verse 39 of the chapter in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Christ uh, left Peter, James and John and went deeper into the garden, we read that he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And now tonight, verses 40 and 41. Then he came to the disciples and found them asleep and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And especially those words, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Now, of course, over uh, the last few days, with the Lord's help, our thoughts have been on the Saviour himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, we saw him there formally presenting himself uh, before God, formally presenting himself as the Passover Lamb. And that, of course, involves accepting to bear the burden of sin. And from Gethsemane onwards, he carries it. And we saw the Lord's struggle yesterday in particular, uh, his struggle in coming to the place where he would indeed accept such a burden on his own soul. Now, of course, the Lord wasn't in Gethsemane on his own. He took the eleven with him. Course, at this point, there are only eleven because Judas uh, left the upper room and he went to do his own work. And sad to say, shortly he will go to his own place. But uh, the Lord took the eleven, and before we close the communion, I think it's right just to visit the garden, as it were, once more and to consider these disciples, especially the three whom the Lord took further into the garden with him, Peter, James and John, who were to become pillars in the early church. And sometimes when the Lord has a particular work for someone or a particular duty to do, there's a particular preparation or a particular teaching. Now I think this separation of the disciples sometimes was the occasion of some envy and strife between them. But the Lord had his own purpose in doing so, and perhaps it's best to consider Peter, James and John particularly. But I want to look at the disciples with you, of course in connection to ourselves and our own faith, but to think about them in the light of the commission that Christ actually gave them that evening as he took them into the garden, and especially as he took the three deeper with him into it, this was his commission. Watch, he said, and pray. And as the time goes on, it is even more specific. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And with God's help, we can look at three things. First of all, the temptation itself. What is the temptation of which Christ is speaking? And second, the particular danger associated with that temptation. In other words, he's calling them not to enter into it, whatever exactly that means. And last of all, their duty in connection with the temptation and the danger their duty is to watch and pray. And may the Lord help us to understand and to apply all these, the temptation, the danger associated with it, and 
the duty. Now let's begin with the temptation. Now the Greek word here is the word very often translated trial, but sometimes it's translated temptation. It's usually translated trial uh, when God is the author and when he is putting us to the test. But if the devil is the author of it, it is usually translated as temptation. And temptation reminds us that the devil is present and, of course, his desire is to attract or persuade or to seduce us into sin. Now, the temptation, of course, is always a trial. But the word temptation reminds us that the devil himself is the author of it. And I think it's fair to say that God's trials very often bring Satan's temptations with them. Uh, he is a strategist, and he is, of course, very cunning, extremely skillful, and he observes the trials of God and sees them as his opportunities. And therefore, don't be surprised when the devil's temptations come inside God's trials. And of course, it's part of God's purpose to allow that to be so. Uh, your temptation, in other words, will in its own way be God's trial too. Now we need to understand the difference between temptation coming on the one hand and entering into temptation on the other. The Lord's uh, commission is very specific, he says. Watch and pray lest you enter into it. But entering into temptation is not the same thing as temptation itself coming. <clears throat> temptation can come without you entering it. So I suppose, in a way, we need to begin with the idea of temptation coming. Obviously, you can't prevent that. But you can certainly prevent entering into it. Now, Christ uh, calls them to prayer because he knows that temptation is actually coming. He knows that. In fact, he knows that it is very, very near. He knows the devil is coming. The devil is coming for himself, and the devil is coming for them too. And just a couple of hours earlier in the upper room, he had told them that, that the prince of this world is coming. And just a few moments after this, actually, when the group come to arrest him, he said, this is your hour, and it is the power of darkness. Of course, mysteriously, it's his own hour too. But his hour is to endure what they do in their hour. This is your hour, your free reign, and this is the presence of the power of darkness. So he makes plain to the disciples that Temptation is coming, because the devil is coming, and Satan is coming for them. And in fact, just before they enter the garden, uh, the Lord is very conscious of the spiritual condition of his own disciples. He's very conscious of it, and he turns to all of them, and he says to them, Satan has asked for you, and the you there is you plural. All of you. You will ever. Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Most of us will be most familiar with that in the uh, authorised version, where it reads that Satan have desired you to sift you as wheat. There's nothing wrong with that. But the word desire is a little weak. Uh, when you read the word desire, it makes you think that it's just in Satan's heart. He wants you. He longs to have you. Whereas really your version gets more to the heart of it by saying he has asked for you. Because that's what the Greek is really conveying. It's nothing less than a formal request that Satan presents before God. A formal permission to sift the apostles. To sift them. Most of you will know what sifting is. It involves just uh, putting wheat into a, into a large circular sieve and just shaking it around and of course the chaff either flies away or falls through 
and you're left with the wheat. So what Satan essentially asks for is permission to shake them around, to buffet them, to assault them, because he believes that if he's given that permission, he will expose them all to be chaff. Now, of course, most of us are familiar with the most famous incident of that kind of request and of that kind of permission given, which we have in the oldest book in the Bible, and that's the book of Job, where Satan, of course, appears in heaven amongst the rest of the angels, and his own special request is to be allowed to assault Job and to sift him like wheat. Uh, Satan always needs to ask permission to touch any of God's people. And it doesn't matter, I mean, if a temptation, if a temptation comes near you, uh, Satan has received the permission to do that. I suppose that's a staggering thing to think of him asking God for that permission. When we think about it, it's actually far more staggering that God grants it. Uh, that raises many, many questions. But I think in connection with it, although it takes us maybe a little bit off our specific theme, I think it's important to remember three things. First of all, remember this, that whenever Satan is loosened, he is still always on a leash. And that's just not even in connection with God's people, that's period. But especially in connection with God's people, whenever he is let loose, and he can be in your life for a moment, he's always on a leash. And again, in connection with that, God allows him sometimes to come near his own people, but along with the temptation, as Paul says, God will make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. I think we could say that the way of escape is watching and praying, or certainly the way to the throne of grace is the primary way of escape. Maybe you could say that fleeing the temptation might be the primary way of escape. I think I quoted to you recently what someone said a long while ago, that sadly when we often flee temptation, we leave a forwarding address for the devil to find us. Tragically, that can sometimes be so. But whenever God allows the tempter near you, he will also make a way of escape to bear it. The third thing to remember is that even if you do fall, or stumble, and if you enter into temptation, which sadly Peter did, as did James and John and the rest, God will keep his own people. He will do that, and he will bring them, as he brought Peter especially, but James and John too, to a place of repentance. So it's always critical to remember these three things, your safety is in God, but the attack is very, very real. Now, when Christ says to the disciples that Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat, it's very plain that this request was granted. After all, he goes on to say, when he says to the disciples, Satan has asked for all of you, he then turns to Peter and says, but I have prayed for you, and this time it's you singular in the Greek, I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith would not fail. By implication, all of them are sifted. The faith of all of them is shaken. But Peter requires a special intercession because of how weak his faith actually is. Now, <clears throat> uh, in some ways, that's, of course, a surprise. That would be a surprise to Peter hearing it whatever extent he's processing it that's a moot point for now to whatever extent the disciples are processing it, that's a moot point too but one thing's sure for all of us and, and that is how wrong we can be in our assessments of people and where they are spiritually how wrong we can be and how wrong we can be even in connection with our own attainments too, I mean supposing you were in the company of these disciples supposing you had been in their company that night or or let's say even the previous year for that matter. And you were looking at them and you were listening to them, listening to every word you said. And then someone came to you and said, now which one of these is most likely to withstand a battle and a trial? I'm quite sure your answer would be Simon. Simon. 
is most powerful and impressive in his zeal, in his energy, and in the words that he actually speaks. And in fact, if you were to ask the other ten, um, which of you is most likely to stand in a trial or difficulty, I've no doubt that they would have said Simon. No doubt at all. The sad thing is that if you were to ask Simon himself who was the most likely to stand in a trial and difficulty, he would say himself. Now, doesn't, he's not saying that because he's proud. It's his honest assessment of how much he loves the Lord himself. And the way he sees his own love for Christ and his commitment to him, well, he sees it as being so great that there is nothing on earth that could separate him from his Lord. Nothing that can come between him and his devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I mean about how wrong we can be. Not just about other people, but sad to say about ourselves too. After all, when Christ said that all would stumble tonight, all of you, he says, believe it or not, are going to stumble tonight because of me. Peter immediately responded and said, even if they all do, you can count on me, because I will not stumble. So the fact of the matter is that the temptation that the Lord is speaking of here, when he says, watch and pray that you don't enter it, is not a possible temptation. It's a table temptation that has already been prepared. In fact, it's already been prepared up there by the devil formally making his request to bring the temptation into that path and that temptation is on its way. In fact, I suppose you can say that um, it has already begun. Certainly, Satan appeared in the upper room and he appeared at the Lord's Supper. I mean, I mentioned, I can't remember, was it yesterday or on Saturday, I was mentioning that Satan can come into the holiest of places and he can come at the holiest of times. Uh, he can come to your secret place. He can break into your prayer right in the middle of it. He, of course, had access into the very heart of the Saviour himself, and there was no holier place on earth than that. He was right in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we saw on Saturday, tempting, O oh Lord. He was also in the upper room when the first Lord's Supper was kept. We're told, of course, on that occasion that <clears throat> Satan entered the room, and... <clears throat> The Lord is aware of the entrance of Satan into the room. We're told that he sighed deeply, that he groaned in his spirit. And we're told that Satan, who came into the room, entered uh, Judas Iscariot. Just, uh, just a week earlier, he had, uh, when they were in Mary of Bethany's house, and she was washing our Lord's feet. That was a holy place too. That was a holy act and a holy fellowship. Satan came into Judas there too. It was on that occasion that Judas resolved that he would betray the Lord. That, you could say, was the Satan of purpose entering him. But here, in the upper room, we have the Satan of decisive action. Uh, Jesus solemnly says to them, What you've got to do, go and do it. What you've set your heart on, do it. See it through. I know that your heart is firm. I know that you've resolved to do it. In fact, you've arranged it more or less already, but now go and do it. And that effectively is Satan sifting the twelve. And already, chaff has blown away. And I'm quite sure that the rest of the disciples were quite shocked to discover that Judas was chaff. Quite shocked. After all, when the Lord announced at the table that one would betray, they didn't have a clue who it was. They didn't have a clue who it was. Thankfully, they all said, Is it I? There's a way in which at least we should be thankful for that. But I'm sure, I'm quite sure that the devil was encouraged by that. Quite sure he was encouraged as he began to shake the sill 
back and forth, it's astonishing how quickly one fell. And I'm quite sure that the devil probably thought that it wouldn't take much to make the rest fall away as well. Now, as they're praying in the garden, the temptation is actually advancing. It's advancing, of course, in the form of the temple officials, a small detachment of the uh, local Roman guards, as well, we're told, as a great multitude who are coming with swords and with clubs. Judas at their head. Yes, physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, you know well who's at their head. It's Satan who's bringing this temptation, bringing it into the life of the Lord, and indeed bringing it into the life of the disciples. It's amazing to think that that multitude thought that they were doing God's will and that they were serving the church when actually they were doing the work of the devil. That's quite an astonishing thing too. But there's many a person serving a church and thinking they're doing the will of God when they're doing the work of the devil. I mean, Jesus solemnly said to the disciples, he said that they will throw you out of synagogues. There will, people, there will be people, he says, who think that they are doing God's service when they persecute you and kill you. And here they are in all their enthusiasm, serving the devil and doing his will. So the temptation is coming. Now, at least the disciples were forewarned that it was coming. <clears throat> now, usually in life, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. You know that saying? To be forewarned is to be forearmed. But not necessarily so. And certainly not, in this case, so. Our problem, of course, is that very often we don't know when temptation is coming. We just don't know. And that's a bit like Job. I mean, Job's day of terrible adversity began as a day of prosperity. I mean, the day in which everything began to go wrong was a day in which everything was going right. Uh, he was wealthy and prosperous, and he could say, like David said in the psalm, but thou hast made my mountain to stand firm. But all of a sudden, his prosperous state was turned into misery. At the devil's request, he suddenly loses it all. He had no idea that was coming. No idea at all. And the devil, of course, likes to look for an opportunity but we're not necessarily aware of when that opportunity is. Just recently, when we were looking at the, the way the Amalekites attacked Israel, you'll remember that I made the comparison between Amalek and the, and the devil himself, the lion that Peter speaks of, the roaring lion, that we're told to be sober and to be vigilant, which is related to this, to watch and pray. Be sober and be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now you may remember that I, I just pointed out on that occasion that the lion will sit for hours on end observing a herd. Extremely patient, extremely patient for literally hours on end until by watching them he gradually detects which one of them is the weakest. Now that's got a lot to teach. You could personalise that by saying that he can watch an individual until he discovers the chink in his or her armour which makes it the right time and the right situation to attack. So he identifies the weak one in a group and he identifies the weak link in your own spiritual chain. I sometimes wonder, friends, if, if um, Satan detected Peter's weakness. Uh, I said to you earlier that if you had been there, or if I had been there in that company, that we would have assumed he was the strongest and the best because we would have paid a lot of attention to his words. But the devil's smarter than that. And I just wonder if he detected an element of self-confidence 
and of self-reliance, something that he could move in on and expose, perhaps to the destruction of Peter's soul, because that's, of course, what he wants anyway. Uh, <coughs> Satan doesn't just monitor us in public, he also monitors us in private. And uh, he draws his own conclusions. The way he sees you behave, where you go, how you spend your time, how you pray, how you read your Bible. He monitors that and he draws his own conclusions. But obviously if we don't know exactly when the devil will come in raging like a lion, it's extremely important that we simply expect it any time. It's a bit like the flip side of Christ's coming. The Lord Jesus Christ's coming is imminent, it's urgent. We don't know the day or the hour. The Lord says, watch therefore and be ready. When? Always. All the time. So that when he finds you, you're ready to be taken, even if another is going to be left. Well, that's the Lord's coming. Can we not say the same about the devil's coming? You don't know the day or the hour when the real attack is going to come into your home or into your life. You don't know. Therefore, be ready. Watch and pray. It's far easier to prevent than to cure. Well then, the temptation is coming. But as I said at the beginning, it's one thing for a temptation to come, it's another thing to enter into it. And that takes us, secondly, to the danger involved here. And that is the danger of entering temptation. Now, if you were to ask, well, what does it mean to enter into temptation? The answer really is very simple. It means to fall in with Satan. It means to yield to his prompts, to his suggestions, or to his seductions. His intention always, of course, is, as Peter tells us, to devour. That's what the roaring lion does. Or as Paul says elsewhere, like the serpent, he unhinges his jaw and swallows you up. Or as Jesus says elsewhere, his intention is to kill and to destroy. Of course, very often he settles for less, because sometimes by harming you, he kills you. Uh, any amount of harm to the Lord, to the Lord's cause, will do him very well. And tonight as he comes to these people in Gethsemane, if he can get them to forsake the Lord, good. What a blow that is to the infant church. If he can get even one of them to deny the Lord, will that not bring shame on Jesus? Will it not bring shame on the infant church if one of the pillars can be brought to a place of denial? Or better still, if he can get one of them pretty much to renounce him altogether, like Judas did, well, that's best of all. <laughs> As you well know, much of that happened. As this uh, sifting was going on with the sieve, most of it did happen. I mean, when the, when the group came in to attack the Lord, there was first the fleshly resistance, wasn't there? We're told elsewhere in the Gospels that the disciples had two swords. Now, who had them or how they got them, we don't know. But Paul, sorry, Peter, was quick to unsheath one. And I mentioned yesterday how he, he just struck out with it and cut off the servant of the high priest's ear. But that was the flesh. That was the flesh. I suppose if he had watched and prayed, the sword wouldn't have been his response. Maybe another sword, but not that one. And as well as that fleshly resistance, there was a tragic forsaking. And, and the thing about that is too, that on their way into the garden, the Lord had said to them, you're all going to forsake me tonight. Um, and he's not simply speaking as someone who knows that that's going to be the case. He's actually resurrecting the old prophecy that Sahariah had given 500 years before. Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Strangely, God himself is the speaker. He, he will smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They will scatter themselves. 
And of course the gospel writers tell us that on this evening they all forsook him and fled. Now yesterday I mentioned that in, or on Saturday in connection with the grief it was to the Lord so and so that those whom he loved seemed to love him back so little in return. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians too. He said to them, as they were turning away from himself, he says, the more abundantly I love you, he says, the less you seem to love me. These things can be sore in the Christian's heart when somebody for some reason, perhaps sometimes even unknown to you, just seems to turn away from you and cool towards you. But like I said the other day, it's good to know in every experience we pass through that the Lord passed through it himself. It's good to know. It's good to know. There was a fleshly resistance. There was a tragic forsaking. I mean, they dispersed from the garden and they just went out into the night. I mean, there they were. The people who just minutes before had said, not us. They're just gone. Gone. And then, of course, there was the futile recovery too. I mean, Peter... Quickly after he got out of the garden, he thought to himself, well, this isn't, this isn't good. It's not a good look. And as well as being not a good look, it just isn't good. It isn't right. This is not what I said I would do. This isn't what I thought I would do. It's not honestly what I thought I would do. Let me put it right. And he does, to some extent. He tries. And he begins to follow the procession. We're told at a distance which I suppose isn't itself a, a good sign, but at least he follows at a distance. And he goes right into the courtyard of the high priest. And of course, if it was his intention going into the courtyard of the high priest, which I believe it was his intention to stand with Christ and to identify with Christ and more or less to say, if you strike him, you strike me. And if you reject him, you reject me. And if you'll crucify him, then crucify me. Then that courage melted as he sat beside the fire. Melted away as he's challenged once and twice and three times. And instead of doing what he thought and raising his voice to defend the Saviour, astonishingly, he raised it and filled the night sky with oaths and with curses, saying that he didn't even know who this man was. Again, I mentioned that the other day, in connection with the grief that was in the Saviour's heart, to again have the one you love so much appearing not to love you at all. But in terms of how it was for Peter himself, isn't it astonishing that he did actually deny the Lord? But is it surprising? He had failed earlier in the flesh, he had failed to pray. His response to the arresting party was to wield the sword. And if you failed in the flesh, do you think you can put it right in the flesh? Do you think if your flesh has made you stumble, that your flesh can make you rise again? Do you think that just trying to recover your old strength and your swagger and your dignity is enough to make you go into a courtyard and to stand with the Lord? No, you can't rectify sin with sin. You can't use your own strength and your own wisdom to put a problem right that you have made. It was your spiritual failing that made you fell, fall, and it will only be spiritual strength that will make you rise, not the attempt just to be courageous and to be yourself. In fact, it's just compounding the problem. It's compounding it. If the flesh is the problem, the flesh is not the answer. And I'm sure that night when, um, when the Lord turned round, of course, and he looked at Peter, didn't he? He turned round and he looked at Peter. There's lots in that look, but that's another sermon. But certainly the look made Peter go out into the night where we're told that he wept bitterly. Now, uh, again, how wrong we can be just as we could be wrong about the state the disciples were in earlier, we could be very wrong about them this time too. If we were familiar with what had just happened to Judas Iscariot, or what was about to happen, maybe it had actually happened to him by that time, we would have said, well, there's no difference between these two. 
This is two trophies that the devil has secured this night. This is two bits of chaff flying away and there's only now ten left. Judas went into the night bitterly weeping and Peter goes out into the night bitterly weeping. There's nothing to differentiate them except everything. Everything. Who would have thought there was a universe of a difference between them both? And there is precisely that. One is inside the Saviour's intercession, the other is not. Simon, I have prayed for you in this sifting that your faith would not fail. And Peter, in other words, is kept by the intercession of Christ. It's as though Christ is saying, Peter, <clears throat> strong as you think yourself to be, I know your faith is really extremely weak. And I have prayed that it wouldn't fail altogether. That it would stay alive. And by my grace and kindness, I will fan it back into flame. The solemn thing is that Judas had no place in this intercession at all. The tears of Judas were tears of remorse and despair. The tears of Peter were tears of repentance and hope. And that's why, you see, when we sin, and I've sinned, and you've sinned, the Lord in his kindness brings us to, I don't like the word regret at all. Uh, I'm happy to use it in the sense I mean it. Uh, he brings us to regret it, but rather to repent of it. And to a place where we're filled with hope, with a sense of the love of God, and a, a renewed commitment to follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And isn't that a wonderful thing? It is a wonderful thing because it's not a fruit that grows in the natural heart. It's as simple as that. It's only a fruit that grows in the spiritual heart. And if, if you're even here tonight and you're conscious that your faith is weak and for some reason maybe you've said or done something and you're not where you should have been. If, if even your own heart, even as the word is preached and as the Saviour is brought before you, as he works in the hearts of people like Peter, if it stirs within you a desire to uh, renew your strength through God, to be strong in the power of his might, not your own, if it renews in you the desire to serve him again wholeheartedly, praise God and thank him for that because that's his kindness and that's his grace. That's his power catching you before you fall through the net. There was a difference. Now, the key is how do we avoid falling into that temptation or to use the Lord's words, how do we avoid entering into it? Well, that's the third part of the sermon. Our duty is to watch and to pray. That's what he calls them to do as they enter the garden. Watch and pray, and he later specifies it. Watch and pray in case you fall into that temptation. Now, watching means being spiritually vigilant. It means looking out, looking around you, Assessing the times, assessing your season, discerning your providence, discerning the spiritual situation that you're in. Looking for dangers, being able to foresee them, recognising that the devil's close, that the devil is speaking to you, even when someone else is speaking to you, just recognising where you are. And you need prayer in order to be able to watch properly. You'll never find watching without prayer. You'll never find prayer really without watching. You've got to watch prayerfully. You've got to pray watchfully. Watch and pray. Be on the lookout for the enemy. Now I don't know if you remember this. In fact, I'm not sure if I said it. And if I said it, you can't remember it, of course. But when I was say, talking about the lion, I'm sure I did say this. That when the lion waits patiently for hours to identify the weak one. The herd is actually always safe enough if it keeps looking. Especially if it uh, looks directly in the direction of the lion. 
The lion then knows uh, it's a bit of a waste of time. So he waits until he can again put himself into a place where he can't be seen. But like I said, he's got hours and hours to wait. So the herd are okay, in other words, if they're alert. If they just keep their heads down, they're in trouble. If they regularly listen out for any rustling, and if they lift their heads, well, the lion knows they're vigilant. And that vigilance makes his job difficult. Now, I sometimes wonder, as I'm sure you do, at the way that God has marvellously woven the natural world together to be a reflection of the spiritual one. The author of the two worlds is the same. And they're not as different as we think they are. That's why people who study nature and who study animals and who study plants and everything that the Lord has made will always seem to have that extra little bit of insight into how the spiritual life works too. Be sober and be vigilant because the devil finds it harder to make much headway with those who are sober and vigilant. Now if they had been prayerful and watching, they would have known that the danger was near. Now of course the interesting thing is that Christ, as I said, did make that known to them. And Besides that, it was evident in the first session of prayer, uh, when Peter, James, John and Christ are together in the garden, you'll remember that the Lord became conscious of the darkness and of the cup being revealed to him. And he turned to the rest of them and he said that my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, deeply distressed, even, he says, to the point of dying. I feel as though I am already dying. Now, that is a call to them, it's not it's a call to them to recognise that this is not even a normal time of prayer. It should be evident to them that their own saviour is in deep distress of mind. It should be evident to them as well that there is danger all around. We were talking in the Manson Friday night about how you can sometimes detect the spirit of the Lord in a place. You're very much aware that the spirit of the Lord is in a place and you can also be aware of a presence of evil in the place. Uh, a dead or sleepy Christian is dead to both. I mean, there are some who are so backslidden they'll, they'll go to a nightclub as easily as go to a prayer meeting. There are others who approach a prayer meeting as though it were a nightclub. But when a Christian is alive and well and right, they well know where the Spirit of the Lord is present and so they can detect where <coughs> evil is present. They should have been able to, well, there must have been a thick darkness in Jerusalem. Really, really. I mean, if you were to identify any locality at any given time in the history of the world where evil was loose, I would say to you it was on this evening and the following day in Jerusalem. And they can't seem to detect it. Or if they are out of sorts, and if they're feeling a terrible sorrow or a confusion, they can't seem to identify what it really involves. Now, if they were watching, their prayers would have two focal points. The first is that they would be praying earnestly for the Lord himself. Now, in saying that, we have to be careful. In fact, part of myself recoiled when I was thinking about it that way. Is it right to think of the disciples praying for the Lord? Well, he certainly took them uh, to be with him. And he is in need. And he is in need of God's help. And he himself is praying for God's help. And I suppose on the face of it, we should be able to say, why shouldn't they ask for God to help their Saviour too? After all, the church always prayed for the Saviour. In the Old Testament, you'll, you'll find that they foresee him in the Old Testament in his state of humiliation and they are praying for him. I made reference to Psalm 20 where the church is seeing the king in his distress in the midst of a terrible battle and they are asking for God to save the king from his distress. In fact, the psalm ends by saying, God save the king. The next Psalm 21 opens with the king saved 
home and glory, crowned with glory and honour. That reminds us that the Messiah was born through the prayers of the Church and that the prayers of the Church indeed accompany him for his deliverance, for the help of God in his life. And they had plenty of encouragements to do that as they saw him. Remember the full moon that night? They saw him at a distance, prostrate on the ground. They heard him pleading to God. I spoke yesterday of the difference between a petition and a plea. Well, the Lord wasn't just petitioning, he was pleading. With strong crying, Hebrews tells us, and with tears. And they heard that. And what's more, when he came and roused them, there was a bloody sweat on his face. It's not just that he was pouring sweat, but it was tinged with red. Is that not a call for them to ask God to help? To help? It's not as though their prayers have any value apart from the Saviour, but that's not the point. Surely there was a call to ask God to help the one who was asking God to help himself. But there was also, surely, the, the fact that their prayer should have this focal point of praying for themselves. That if there really is a danger, if there's any danger of forsaking him or denying him or renouncing him or betraying him, that they would be kept from that. After all, the Lord tells them that their flesh is weak. Your spirits are willing, he says. I know that you're here to pray. I know that you've always come with me to pray. I know that you want to pray. I know that you love nothing better than being with me in prayer in this garden, as we've been so often before. But I know too, and you should know, that your bodies are exhausted. You are also being perplexed by events that you don't understand, and words that are too high for you. And I know that deep down in your heart, although you're not processing everything I'm saying, you know that there's something not right and not good. And sorrow has filled your heart. In fact, we're told that one of the reasons the disciples slept was because of their sorrow. And they had every reason to follow through on that willingness to pray. Christ has given them a quiet place. How important that is for us. He's given them each other's fellowship and encouragement. There's nothing like praying with people who want to pray with you. And he's also given them the Saviour's example who is just praying across from you. Now friends, there's a time to sleep and a time to pray. And there's no need to pray when the Lord's giving his beloved sleep. We've got to watch, not, we've got to watch beating ourselves up uh, about that. I came aware a long time ago that the devil can sometimes try and get you to pray. There's a time to sleep and a time to pray. The Lord gives his beloved sleep. But there's also a time to pray and a time definitely not to sleep. And sometimes the time to pray can look like the time to sleep. Let me take a very simple analogy. If you're in bed at two o'clock in the morning, unless you're on night shift, that's a time to sleep. But if a thief breaks through your door, you wake up because suddenly it's a time to act. Here in Gethsemane, it may be night time, but it's no time to sleep. And even if your body is saying, well, I need to sleep here, your spirit is saying, no, I don't need to sleep here. There is something infinitely more important at hand. I need to pray. How often have you chosen sleep instead of prayer? Even when you knew deep down that prayer was really what you should be doing at that time. How often have you chosen anything except prayer when you knew that prayer was what you needed at that time? And the devil makes anything either more attractive or more important even than what God wants you to do at the time. And there's no doubt when they settled here in the post of prayer and when they took the posture of prayer, I'm sure they probably thought they could pray and that they would pray with the Lord. But the sad thing is that they are seriously overestimating themselves and seriously underestimating the devil. And that's what always plays havoc with their spiritual lives. Now again, just at the entrance to the garden, the Lord had told them about this. 
He turned for one last time and said to Peter, effectively, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said to Peter, you are in serious danger. Peter said, effectively, to paraphrase him, no, I'm not. Jesus responded by saying the same thing again. Yes, you are, Peter, in great danger. Peter responded effectively by saying, no, I am not. Do you want to have the last word when God's talking with you? Not really. It's not very wise. But he has the last word. The Lord says no more. He says no more. But the fact of the matter is that they're going into prayer really in their own strength. And so it shows. After all, what happens? Well, like the church in the Song of Solomon, they fall asleep. And this sleep isn't just a sleep, is it? It's a sleep. They, they, just, they, they couldn't fight the battle, could they? And what really proves that is that when he comes back to rouse them, they still can't fight the battle. We have in the Song of Solomon, we have Christ knocking at the heart. Christ knocking at the door. He puts his hand on the latch and leaves myrrh there. And his locks are covered with the dew of the night. How fitting that is for Gethsemane. I'm fighting a battle for you. Oh, I've, I've taken my robe off. I can't get up. I've, I've taken my shoes off. I, I, I can't dirty my feet again. If that sounds pathetic, it's because it is pathetic. And it's because many of the reasons we give for not just being with the Lord for an hour are quite pathetic too. There's 24 hours in a day. And suppose you even divided the hour into uh, 20 minutes with your Bible... 20 minutes in meditation upon it and 20 minutes of prayer. We can't find it, can we? Even when we need it. Can't be roused, even at the sight of a saviour bleeding, sweating blood for themselves. It's interesting when the Lord... I'm sorry, my time has gone on and I'll just bring this to a close. When the Lord came to them the first time, it's interesting that he, that he singled out Peter, hmm? singled him out. Simon, he said, and every time he calls him Simon, I think it just brings his weakness back. Peter is the strong one, Simon's the weak one. Peter, he says, are you sleeping? It's just though he ignores James and John for a moment. Are you sleeping? In other words, you who are so sure, even at the entrance of the garden, that you would die for me, you can't actually pray for me or with me for one single Hour. Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Am I? You know, we look around us and we see the need. We see a land slipping into incredible iniquity, even in our primary schools. We see churches just getting progressively lukewarm, sometimes to the point where they're just denying the faith. We see hardly anyone coming forward and being born again. And can we still watch one hour? Do we have the zeal or the earnestness to get a hold of God? Because temptation is coming in. Oh, it's easy, very easy to look at these men and say, well, how couldn't you do that? Maybe they would look at us tonight in this condition and say, how on earth are you not watching with God? So, so sleepy. Well, friends, let's leave it there. And like I said, my time has gone. There was other things to say, but I've taken far too long to say that. But although this may seem like a story of failure, and it is in one way, it's a story of their failure, but we mustn't forget in conclusion that it is a story of the Lord's success. Because after all, the Lord took care to pray. Um, he knew they wouldn't do it. And he did it in advance. I have prayed for thee that your faith would not fail. And in the midst of his own heartache and the curse that was coming upon him, because again, once he stands before the Sanhedrin, he has started to drink the cup. He hears the oaths and the curses behind him, and he turns and looks at Peter with a look that drove him to repentance because 
whatever else was in the book, Peter knew that the Lord loved him. And he knew that he loved the Lord too. And that's where it all bottoms out. <coughs> and uh, tonight sometimes, yes, we can look at our own failure too, but if he's stripping you, even through what's being said, what's at the bottom of it all? I mean, if he's taken away this and he's taken away that, can you say what Peter said not long after this? Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. If so, let's resolve to watch and to pray and to fight for the Lord. Let us pray. <coughs> O Lord, O God, teach us the power of temptation. Teach us, too, the importance of vigilance <coughs> and of prayer, to recognize it and to be forewarned against it. Help us to recognize when our resistance is fleshly and when our attempted cures are fleshly, too. O grant us, too, Cleave close to the Saviour, the only place of refuge. We thank you for our communion season and ask that you may bless it to us. In the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, close our service singing in Psalm 91. Because the Lord, who constantly my refuge is alone, even the most high is made by thee thy habitation, then no plague shall near thy dwelling come, no ill shall thee befall, for thee to keep in all his ways, thy ways his angels charge he shall. They in their hands shall bear thee up, still waiting thee upon, and it's amazing how God just keeps watch over us, even in these times of darkness and failure lest thou at any time shouldst dash thy foot against a stone. And at last upon the adder thou shalt tread, just as Christ did, and on the lion's throng, thy feet on dragon's trample shall, and on the lion's young. 9 to 13, let's stand to sing. <coughs>
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.